me encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 4 today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab a Bible that we provide in the chairs there. And, and in those Bibles, it's page 871. Luke chapter 12, or page 871 in the Bibles that we have provided. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed the Work Reimagined series that Tanner's been sharing with us for the past four weeks. So, man, we've been really blessed and challenged in how to integrate our faith and our work. So, man, Tanner did an incredible job. So let me encourage you, man, if you missed any of those sermons, that four-week series, go to the website, download them. You need to listen to them and, and go apply those. Great word from Tanner over the past four weeks. Well, today... We're going to pick back up in the Gospel of Luke. You may have been wondering, hey, man, we haven't been in Luke in a while. What's going on? Well, we're going to pick back up and, and steadily move on toward the end of Luke over the, the coming months. And so today we're picking up in Luke chapter 12. And just to refresh you, since we haven't been here in a number of weeks, when I preached last, which was Luke chapter 11, we, we looked at Jesus and one of his strongest rebukes recorded in the Gospels, and it was directed right to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, really strong rebuke. And I want you to just go back with me to chapter 11, and I want you to see how they responded to Jesus' rebuke. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 53, it says, As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. You see, Jesus had accused them with their forefathers of, of killing the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus knows what's about to happen. These scribes and Pharisees are going to be the very ones that are going to send him to the cross and kill him. And then... After him, his disciples will face much persecution. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What are you thinking now? Jesus has called me to follow him, to leave everything. And now he's telling me, hey, get ready because you're probably going to face the same persecution that the Old Testament prophets faced. And by the way, John the Baptist has already faced and and that's probably coming for me and for you as well. Do you, you think they had maybe a little bit of worry that started to creep in? I mean, how are we going to face such persecution? Let me ask you today, what are you worrying about right now? Even as I begin this sermon, what do you catch your mind drifting off to? What's, what's consuming your thoughts Right now, I mean, we could probably all agree there, there are tons of things that we could be worrying about. Is it going to snow again this year? Who's the next pope going to be? When is Spring Step going to be sold? Man, will the stock market continue to rise? And what implications does that have on my life? Will I be able to get a job? A job that I like? What about a spouse? And the list goes on and on and on. What about my health? Cancer, heart attack. I mean, we could really just have a worry fest right now. Is anybody starting to worry about any of those things? As I, I, hear, I, see, I, see, I see minds and eyes drifting off and you're starting to worry. I mean, there are even things that we don't know that we need to be worrying about that we could be worrying about. I mean, I saw in the news over the past week or so, did you guys hear about the guy in Florida where a sinkhole, his, his living room, like, and, and he, a sinkhole, and he died. I mean, do I need to start worrying about sinkholes now and, and consuming me in the middle of the night? I mean, the reality is, is there are things that we don't even know about that could consume all kind of worry in our lives. There's always something to worry about. And so what Jesus does with his disciples, and hey, let me 
encourage you right now that you need to kind of put that worry aside for those of you that have started to worry and and let's focus in because I don't want you to miss the text that Jesus has here and so he's coming to his disciples and and over these upcoming verses he is going to encourage and challenge them on why they should not worry and and the plea that I have for you today is is that we should fear God so look here with me in Luke chapter 12, and I'm just going to big picture before we dive in. Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear. And then he goes on down in verse 5, but I warn you whom to fear. Fear him. And then jump on over to chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus concludes this section and says, fear not little flock. And so what, I, what we're going to look at today is we've got fear that is, is surrounding the parameters of our text today. And the challenge is, is that we can fear not the worries of this world when we fear God. And when I, when I speak of fear of God, I, I'm using fear in the sense of all to revere him, to respect him, to worship him. And so the point is pretty simple as we go through the text today is that disciples should fear God with life, death, money, and possessions. So let's jump in here. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. And the the first fear that that we're going to face is that we should fear God in the face of persecution. Fear God in the face of persecution. Luke chapter 12, verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him whom, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The first reason that Jesus gives to fear God is that we should fear God because God has authority over eternal life. God has authority over eternal life. And and that's the challenge here in verses 4 and 5. He says, look, I'm going to tell you not to fear. You've got these, the scribes and the Pharisees, and and they're coming after us. But hey, what is the worst they can do? He says, yeah, they can kill you. And and let me give you a little sidebar here. Man, there's no prosperity gospel that I'm giving you today. No prosperity theology. Jesus never promises that he will protect you from death. I mean, the reality is that 100% of us are going to die one day. And so I'm, I'm not, my promise to you today is if you're kind of exploring this Christianity, is I'm not saying come to Jesus and, and your life is going to be a box of chocolates, uh, that it's going to be great. In fact, you, you're, you're probably going to follow the path of Jesus and, and the disciples, which there was much persecution. And so he's telling them, hey, I mean, what is the worst man can do? Man can take your life, but you need to fear the one who has authority over eternal death. So let's think about it. When we fear people, we have a temporal and and limited perspective. We have a temporal and limited perspective. Temporal in the sense that when we fear man, when we fear people, we are desiring immediate praise and acceptance. You guys get that? I'll give you an illustration. How many of you were driven by peer pressure in middle school and high school. Hey, my hand is there with you. Hey, I'm right there. I, mean, I know we got some students in here today. I mean, the, the peer pressure is great. You, you've got, you, you could name the crowds. And, and that crowd is there. And, and, the, and the temptation is that, man, you want that crowd to accept you. And so you're going to live a certain way so that you can receive immediate praise. Now, man, I'm just, I reflect on this sometimes. Those people that kind of drove my life, where are they now? The majority of those people in high school that I sought to pursue praise from, I mean, they're not in my life. And so it's a temporal season. I mean, I don't know about for you, but maybe for you, your whole life is consumed with those who you grew up with in middle school and high school. But for the majority of my, men, they're not in my life. And so I lived for immediate acceptance and praise. And, and those very people now, it doesn't matter 
what they think about me, but they drove my decisions in life. So here's what Jesus is telling the disciples. Don't have a limited temporal perspective. Look eternal. Because the reality is, is, man, we're all going to die one day. And when you die and you stand before God, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of you except God. Are you ready to face God and to give an account of your life? Man, fear God because ultimately he controls eternal life. And, and a little side note here, yes, Jesus does believe in hell. I know there's much discussion today over hell, but this is, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says, you fear one who has authority to cast into hell. Hell is reality because God is perfect, righteous, and holy. We were created to know and love him, and heaven and eternal life is really the life. I know a lot of times we talk about afterlife, in the sense that this is really life, and then this is kind of the afterlife. But I read an article this week that was challenging that this is really the pre-life. That life, in its fullest sense, is eternal life with God. That is what we were made for. And so this, this is all pre. So, I mean, we're going to see this throughout, throughout the passages today, is that when not just with facing persecution, but with money and worry, we so often believe and live in a temporal perspective and forget, man, what were we made for? Eternal life. And so, man, fear God because God has authority over eternal life. Secondly, fear God because God knows you and cares for you. Look at verse six. Jesus continues. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Illustration number one, look at the sparrows. You go to the marketplace, and the cheapest thing at the market, you could get five sparrows for two pennies. Or in the Greek, it's an asterion. It was a, it was a coin of very small value. I mean, two pennies, five sparrows. And here's the point. Jesus says, if God doesn't even forget the most insignificant of sparrows, surely he will not forget about you and he will care for you. Man, I love this Isaiah 49. We read Isaiah 40 earlier. If you want to just read some high theology and just, man, a big picture of God, just take some time this week and read Isaiah 40 and just through the end of the book. But Isaiah 49, look at what um, the prophet says. Can a woman... Forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I want you to think about this today. Man, in, in the midst of your worry and persecution. And you know what? Your persecution, maybe you don't have scribes and Pharisees hunting you down, but maybe you, you experience persecution at work. Maybe you experience persecution at school. Maybe you experience persecution and peer pressure and temptation in your home, in your neighborhood, whatever. The news that Jesus has for you is that God knows you and God cares for you. Do you believe this? The, look at the second illustration Jesus shares. He says, God even knows the number of hairs on your head. Now, let's be honest. For some of this, it's easier for God than others. For instance, my kids have a head full of hair. It probably takes them a while to keep count. I'm joking. God, God knows that immediately. But let's kind of, kind of try to wrap our mind around this. There are 7 billion people in the world right now, and God knows Every single hair. Let that just blow your mind away for a second. And he has that knowledge immediately. He doesn't have an Excel spreadsheet that he has to go back and review and say, oh, that's how many he has. He, he has that knowledge immediately and it is exhaustive. Paul's, Jesus' point here is that if God knows an insignificant thing as the hair on your head, he knows what you're facing. 
So you name it, fill in the blank. Whatever you're facing today, God knows it and he cares. You matter to God. The third thing Jesus shares with us is that God, God's not only has the authority of eternal life and God knows and cares, but God accepts you through Jesus. Let's go on to verse 8. Luke 12, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, I know there's a lot here to unpack, but let's not miss the promise. Whoever acknowledges Jesus is accepted before God. That is good news because God has authority over eternal life. And so the next question that we should all be asking is that, okay, if God has authority over eternal life, well then by what basis does God determine who gets into heaven and who gets into hell? And we have the solution here. And, and the reality is that there's only two options. He says, you either accept Jesus or you reject him. There's no neutral position. So I know, I mean, we've, we've probably got people across the spectrum here. I know we've got probably people that, man, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ. And, and we know there are probably some here today that say, man, I'm kind of exploring this whole Jesus thing. And, man, I, I'm going to encourage you. I mean, this is a huge decision, has eternal implications. But I do want you to hear clearly is that the, the truth of Scripture says that there's only two options. You either accept him or you reject him. And I would pray that, man, this is good news for you today, that you could see if you will embrace Jesus you can stand before God with great assurance. So let's just ask this question. Why Jesus? I mean, why am I accepted through Jesus? Well, if we were to go earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, it says, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Why embrace and cling and treasure Jesus because your greatest need and your greatest problem in standing before God is God is holy and we are not. And so if I'm going to live with God forever, this whole sin deal's got to be taken care of. And Jesus comes and not only does he have the authority to forgive your sin, he is the very one that as we continue reading Luke that is going to lay down his life and pay the penalty for your sin. So that if you will place your faith and trust in him, you stand before God, and God says, welcome into eternal life forever, not because of anything good you've done, but it's all because of what Jesus has done. He is righteous, he is perfect, and he has taken on your sin. Will you place your faith in him today? I would plead with you that, that you should place your personal faith and trust in Jesus. He has authority to forgive your sin. Man, what does that look like? It may be as simple as calling out to God right now and saying, God, man, you're right. I'm a sinner. I have not honored you. Jesus is righteous. He is good. He died for my sins, and I believe it. That's where my faith is. Forgive me. It's what it looks like. And it's to follow Jesus like the disciples for the rest of your life. Will you place your faith in Jesus today, maybe for the first time? And then for those of us that are followers, this isn't a one-time deal. Daily, I place my faith in Jesus. Even as I walk the Christian life, I never get to the point where, where I don't need Jesus and I say, okay, I can stand before God. No, for the rest of my life, it's Jesus is why you should accept me, God. And so for the Christian, it's, it's daily. Maybe it's a reminder for you today that, man, don't put your faith in your good works or good deeds. Put your faith in Jesus because this is the only means by which we will accept, be accepted before God. And this is good news. Let me answer kind of a few objections here based on the text. One could be, well, does this mean if I fail 
to stand up for Jesus that I lose my salvation. I think the best illustration here is Peter. And as we continue to read through Luke, what are we going to see later in, in Luke? What does Peter do three times before the crucifixion? He denies Jesus three times. And yet, what we see Peter in the pattern of his life is that later he regrets that and makes many public professions of Christ. And so I would say, man, as we reflect and think through this, that what Jesus is describing here is not a one-time, man, I failed to stand up for Jesus. What he's looking at is the pattern of your life. And so does the pattern of your life is it characterized, characterized by one of denial or one of Jesus is my all in all? And then secondly, and you may be asking, what does this mean, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And because this is a pretty big deal because it says, man, if you blaspheme the Spirit, you won't be forgiven. And, and maybe you're even here asking, hey, I feel like I've committed the unpardonable sin. And, and is this it? And so let's think through this for a second. This same language is used in, in Matthew and it's used in Mark, but it's in a different context. I want you to, I've got the context here on the screen. Um, I've quoted Mark here. In Mark it says, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And so in the context in the other Gospels, when Jesus responds and says, if you blaspheme against the Spirit, you won't be forgiven, it's in the context that they were there and they were attributing the evident work of Jesus to the work of Satan. And so in light of the context there, I would agree with what Wayne Grudem, systematic theology, what he says about this. He says, this sin consists of unusually malicious, willful rejection and slander against the Holy Spirit work attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. Now let me make a few things clear here. The problem with blasphemy of the Spirit is not that the work of Jesus on the cross can't cover that sin. It, 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 he's not talking about the insufficiency of the cross. What he's pointing to is the hardness of one's heart. In, in the regular, regular and ordinary means that God uses to save people. How does God save me? His spirit convicts me of my sin and leads me to place faith and trust in Christ. But if you blaspheme the spirit, the very means God uses to convict you of sin and point to Christ, how then can you be saved? And so they were attributing the evident work of Jesus. It was clear to the work of Satan instead of the Spirit. So if you're here today and you're wondering, man, have I blasphemed the Spirit? The very fact that you're asking that question is probably evidence that you haven't. And I, I would even say this, that, that if you still have sorrow for sin and a deep desire to seek after God, then, then you haven't blasphemed the Spirit. That's evidence that, man, the God is at work in you. Place your faith in Jesus. Um, another, I mean, another example here is we could look at Paul. First Timothy, Paul says, I was a blasphemer. This is what described his life, and yet God radically changed and opened Paul's mind and eyes to see and embrace Christ. And so come to Christ, because God accepts you in Jesus. One final encouragement in this section is not only does God accept you with Jesus, but God will lead you by a spirit. Look at verse 11, Luke 12, 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Guys, this is encouraging news. Man, hey, disciples, don't worry. When you're persecuted, man, because of this promise, draw near to God. He promises that he will immediately. Did you hear that language? In that very hour hour you face persecution call upon god because the promise here is by his spirit he will teach you what to say man you do not need to fear persecution if you fear god because he is authority of eternal life he knows and cares for you he accepts you in jesus and he will provide you the very words that you need in that hour crush that 
worry and fear God. Second truth that we're going to see here today is that we should not only fear God in the face of persecution, but we should fear God by being immeasurably rich toward him. We should be immeasurably rich toward him. Let's continue on. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, my bro- tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So just kind of setting the stage here. Someone in the crowd's there. He's asking him a question. He says, hey, we've got a family dispute over the inheritance. This, this actually isn't un- uncommon, right? You have all kind of disputes over inheritance. It's amazing what money or greed will do to people. But th- this kind of launches the setting here. And, and look what Jesus says. He says, but he said to him in verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? So Jesus refuses to get entangled in the midst of this dispute. And we're not really told a bunch of extra details about what's going on. But what Jesus does do is he addresses the heart and the central problem at stake here. So look what he says here in verse 15. And he said to them, let's pause here. Who does Jesus reply to? Not just the brother, he's now teaching the crowd. So the question from the brother is what sparked this teaching, but the teaching is to everyone. And he says this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What does Jesus hit at here? Your text may even say, take guard against greed. Jesus is hitting up one of the Ten Commandments, right? Do not covet. And, and I want you to see here, Jesus is addressing not just possessions, but this greed, this heart, this desire for possessions. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. And so because of this, Jesus lays out that truth, and then he launches into a parable. So let, let's keep reading here, verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Let's pause. Is there anything inherently wrong with this situation. There's nothing. I mean, let's just reflect for a second. This guy just had an incredible year, an incredible harvest, and and we would presume God who controls everything is the one who gives and he takes away, that God has blessed this man with a great harvest, and the surprise here is that the man has a perfectly natural dilemma. You may actually be in this same shoes, I don't know, and you're sitting here and you're saying, man, I've been extremely blessed. What should I do with all of this? And so the dilemma is, how is he going to respond? Now, continuing on, verse 18. And he said this, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Based on God's rejection, we can assume here that his response was not the way that he should have responded. He obviously made the wrong decision with what to do with this great harvest. So I believe, and what I'm going to do now is draw out four truths that I believe Jesus is hinting at and to teach us why we should be rich towards God. And the first one is this. We should be rich, but immeasurably rich for God, to God, toward God, because life is more than possessions. Jesus makes this explicit in verse 14 and 15 there. Take, be on guard against covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Hey guys, remember that kind of temporal perspective we talked about earlier? 
You see the problem here? The problem that Jesus is warning against is defining your life by possessions, and the main problem with doing that is the possessions are superficial and they are temporary. Superficial in the sense that you can never have enough. Superficial in the sense that we think joy and happiness and delight is based on the abundance of possessions, but the root of it is you can never collect enough to satisfy your heart. And then temporary is when you die, you will leave everything here. Let's not miss that. When you die, you will leave everything here. You can take nothing with you. As First Timothy says, naked I came into the world and that's how I will leave it. And so if we're going to be serious about what it means to be a follower of Christ, we can't just skim over this. We need to reflect hard on what does this mean that life is more than possessions. And I would say it's this. We are to use money in such a way that shows to the world that money is not our treasure, Christ is. When you use money to accumulate possessions, what is that telling the world that life is about? So maybe we could ask in another way. What do my and your possessions communicate to those around us about what we believe is central to life? And maybe the reason many of us are afraid to die is because to die means we lose everything. If to you, life is about accumulating possessions Death for you will be scary and it'll be a tragedy because you will lose it all. Life is more than possessions. Second truth I believe we can draw out of the text is that God owns everything. We get a hint reading through the guy's solution going back to verse 18. This is what's coming out. And he said, the change to I, the personal pronoun I. It's, it's going from generic to, he says, I will do this. I will tell, tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I will store all my grain and my goods. You see, Jesus is highlighting this. Let me ask you, whose goods are they? Whose barns are they? Are they his or are they God's? See, here's the perspective on life that many of us blow, is that we think, I earned it, so it's mine. But let me ask you this, how did he earn all of this? God is the one who gives and takes away. Psalm 21, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Let me ask you a question. Is this how you view your possessions? God owns it. They're his. Because if you don't get this, then you will live in such a way, if it's yours, who has the right to determine how it's supposed to be used? You do. But if it's God's, who determines how this is supposed to be used? God does. You see, part of our thinking is this. I'm going to come to church on Sunday and I'm going to drop my 10% into the basket. And then I'm going to take the other 90% and that's mine and I can do with it whatever I want. Do you see the failed logic there? God is just as much concerned with the 90% as he is with the 10%. So the question I have for you is how do you spend the 90%? if the 10% is already given. That leads us to our third truth that Jesus is teaching us here. Life is more than possessions. God owns everything, and you're God's money manager. If God owns it, here's the position you're in. You're just managing his wealth. 
You're just managing his money. And so if I'm God's money manager, well, let's say this. Let's say you worked for me and you were my money manager. How would you determine how my money was supposed to be spent? Would you just spend it however you wanted to spend it? No, what would you do? You would come and me and you would sit down and grab coffee at Mystic Coffee Roaster, and I would tell you, this is how I want my money spent. Go and do that and make it happen. Right? Have you done that with God? If God owns everything, then we are just his money manager. And so we come to God with not just 10%, we come with all of it and we say, God, you tell me, how is your money supposed to be spent? And, and one of the central things that you, God gives you the responsibility to determine in life is how much money is enough money to live on. God actually lets you set your own salary. Now, what do I mean by that? That doesn't mean you're going to your job. What I mean by that is just because you get paid a certain income doesn't mean that's what you live on. Now, most of us don't get that. Most of us, this is how we think of money. I get paid X amount, and so I'm going to live X amount. So if I've got a $50,000 salary, well, I'm going to match it with a $50,000 lifestyle. Or if I got, I've got a $100,000 salary, well, then I'm going to match it with a $100,000 lifestyle. Or if I have a million-dollar salary, I'm going to match it with a million-dollar lifestyle. That's not being a good steward. So let me ask you this. One of the central things you've got to determine in life is, God, how much do I need to live on? And then what do you want me to do with the rest? What if we took that approach? What if instead, and I'm not even going to go down this route, but I'll say most of us, if we have a $50,000 income, we're probably living more like sixty and $70,000 and we're just accumulating debt because we want to live a different lifestyle, but we don't have the money to afford it. That's, you can come to the equipping class that starts next Sunday. We'll start working through some of those issues. But guys, man, what if we got serious about this and said, okay, God, I really want to seek you and I want you to help me determine what I should live on and then everything above and beyond that? Okay, God, how do you want me to spend all this money? What if God decides to prosper us Not so that we can raise our standard of living, but we can raise our standard of giving. And that's why I like to throw the 10% number out the door. Because for many of you, that's probably too low. The 10% is, well, a guy who's making a million dollars and gives 10%, and a guy who's making 100,000 and gives 10%. The problem there is that, man, determine what you need to live on, and maybe for some of you, that 60 and 70% you're giving away. But this is what it means to to manage God's money. So if God were to come back today and grab coffee with you at Mystic Coffee Roaster and to get kind of a check-in on how you were managing his money, what kind of report do you think you would be given? See, we need to fear God with our money because it's not ours, it's his. And we're his stewards. One other thing that Jesus says here, last truth in this section, is that We should fear God and be immeasurably rich with him because what you give to God is touched with immortality. This is based on a C.S. Lewis quote that he says this. Whatever you give to God is touched with immortality. Jesus isn't saying that earthly treasures are bad. What he's saying is, is they don't last. Look here with me in Luke 12. I'm going to jump to the end because Jesus picks this theme back up. And 32 and following. In Luke 12, 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The problem with earthly treasures is that they are fading. Somebody can come and steal earthly treasures. Moths can come in and destroy them. But whatever you give to God is touched with immortality. So how can you send it ahead? If you can't take it with you, how can you send it ahead? And and the main thrust here is you can invest in the kingdom. If we've got all of this, as we're stewarding God's money, and saying, okay, God, how do you want me to spend it? He's going to say this, invest in the kingdom. Seek the kingdom, pursue the kingdom invested in the kingdom that's sending it ahead that's that's getting money bags 
You want to go walk into heaven with money bags? Invest in the kingdom. That's what he's saying. And so, uh, the other implication is your heart always follows where you put God's money. It always follows. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, Jesus says, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you where your heart is. Where, what, what you spend money on reveals what's in your heart. And also, it works another way. What you spend money on, your heart's going to chase after it. You ever spent money on something and then man, just saw, man, well, I've got to start investing a lot of things, a lot of time. I'm going to go buy a, a boat and then I've got to justify buying the boat by, man, my heart's going to run after it. I've got to spend all this time with the boat. Well, maybe you're saying, hey, I want a heart for missions. You know what I'm going to tell you to do? Start giving to missions. I want a heart for Jesus. Start, man, put your money and watch your heart just chase after it. Man, support one of these college kids that's going to go on a mission trip this summer. Just watch your heart just fly after and be a part. I love, I love what C.S. Lewis says here. Man, and asking, man, how, how much should I really be giving? Because giving is the only solution to materialism. It's, it's the only way that we can fight against it. He says this, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charity's expenditure excludes them. Does your giving require you to daily trust God? And we ought to be looking for ways every day to be generous. What about your relational networks? What are ways you can, I'm not just talking about the church here. Maybe some of you are thinking, man, John's just trying to, you know, to build up a great offering today. I'm, I'm not, I'm, man, I trust God with that. I mean, what about your neighbors? How can you be generous to your neighbors? What about your family? How can you, how can you be generous to those at work? You're going to show up and just buy donuts for work one day? Muffins? Go buy somebody lunch? And how, how can you be generous in all of your spheres of life to display the gospel? And I'll say this. I mean, when you come to understand the gospel, the question moves from how much should I give to how much can I give? Because the gospel, look, I'm glad God wasn't stingy with us. And that's our picture. God wasn't stingy. Man, he gave his only begotten son. You read through Ephesians. He has been immeasurably rich to us in grace. So I want to tell you, go model that. Don't be stingy. Go be filthy rich. And you're giving to God. Last truth I want us to hit up. We should fear God in the face of persecution. We should fear God with our money and we should fear God with absolute trust in his gracious provision. Verse 22, let's cruise. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. It, it makes a natural progression that now God would turn, Jesus would turn to worry. Because here's what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, man, if I'm rich toward God, man, I start giving to the church, and I start kind of pinching myself. I'm giving, and I'm like, okay, man, this is kind of hampering my lifestyle a little bit. Well, then, man, God, don't I need certain things like food and clothing and shelter? The natural tendency is going to be, hey, okay, Jesus, here's, I won't have to worry about those things if I just store up treasures here. If I just get money bags here and build big barns and store all my money in, I won't have to worry about this. But you were created to know and love God and trust him. And so here's what Jesus is going to hit at. He's going to, man, you don't need to worry about those things because I, I know you need them and I'll care for them. So let's just look, man, six principles right out of the text here. Man, the first reason that you should not worry and you should have absolute trust is because God gives you ultimate purpose in life. Food and clothing should not define you. The glory of God should. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. That's what he says here in 22 and 23. Life is more than food and clothing. So don't let material possessions define you. Go through your worry list one, one, one by one. And you know what Jesus is going to say? Life is more than blank. Life is more than spring step. Life is more than snow. Life is more than cancer. Life is more than health. Life, you name it. Life is more than. Don't be defined by the things of this earth. Second thing, 
is you can trust God with his gracious provision because he values you greatly. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. We're back to the birds again. They neither, neither snow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Jesus isn't saying you don't need to work. The birds aren't just sitting around laying back and God's just like dropping food in their mouth. They're working. They're searching for worms and food, but they don't have a refrigerator. They don't have a storage pantry. You know how the birds eat? Day by day. And he says, are you not of more value than the birds? Trust me. So maybe what you worship is not God, but comfort. And your idol that needs to be crashed today is security and comfort, and let God be the rock of your life. Verse 25 and 26, he controls the length of your life. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then, why, if then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? I can't add any hours to my life by worrying. In fact, you know what usually happens? Worry takes hours away from my life and could even kill me. So why worry? You can't even do a small thing at that. Don't waste precious energy worrying about something you can't control. Use that energy and go seek the kingdom. The fourth one, God will clothe you in glory. Verse 27, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither tool nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Look at the lilies. They don't spin. They don't work. And God has clothed them more than the richest of kings to ever live, Solomon. Look at the grass. Grass is alive today, it's thrown tomorrow, it's temporal, and yet God is concerned with that and he provides. Here's the point. You're worth far more than lilies and grass. God will take care of you. And you know what he, he hints at here? No, he makes it explicit. Oh, you have little faith. When we worry, we are not placing faith in God. When we worry, we're saying, it's on my, I've got to, when we worry, we're trying to control things. Because all these things we can't control. There are a lot of things in the future we can't control. So I'm going to worry about it so I can try to have some sense of control. So how do you kill that? You have, you let God have control in your life and you trust him. And that requires faith, believing that God knows and cares for you and what's going on. Fifth one, and God knows exactly what you need. Verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Do not seek. What he's saying here is, do not let these things define your life. Don't seek. Don't be consumed. Don't obsess over these things. Because unbelievers, that's what describes their life. They're, unbelievers, all they're concerned with are possessions. Food, life, clothing. You should be different. You should live in such a way that shows unbelievers that, man, that's not going to consume me because life is more than that. And I can live that way because God says here, he knows what you need. Do you believe that today? Do you believe God knows exactly what you need? And here's the promise I want to tell you. Man, we, I may even die of martyrdom. And God is a gracious provider. I may die of starvation, but God is a gracious provider. The point is, is how we define life is that ultimately this is the pre-life and, and really life is still to come. And through Christ, I can say that, that if I'm in, in sickness, if I'm in poverty, if I'm in hunger, God is good because he ultimately will provide for me for all of eternity even if I lose my life here. That's the promise and the hope of the gospel. 
last encouragement, and we'll wrap up. Verse 31 and 32, and this is it. Instead, instead of worrying about all of these things, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The last truth, and we'll close. God desires to give you the kingdom. God is not stingy. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Guys, this is great news. Do not worry. Seek the kingdom. God is ready to be generous to you. Seek it. Define your life not by possessions, but by the kingdom. And the whole point of this, as we wrap up, is that we should not just refrain from worrying we should pursue the kingdom. I'm not just telling you, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. You've got to replace that with a pursuit in life because the life of worry is the pursuit of possessions and material things and comfort and security and the life of the kingdom is great trust in God. So refrain from worry and pursue the kingdom. I'm going to wrap up with this quote from D.A. Carson, um, great New Testament scholar. He says this, to seek first the kingdom, his desire above all to enter into it Submit to and participate in the spreading of the news of the saving reign of God, the Messianic kingdom already inaugurated by Jesus. So let me ask you this question first of all. Have you entered the kingdom? Have you entered the kingdom through repentance and faith? Secondly, are you pursuing a lifestyle of radical obedience by submitting to the kingdom? And then third, are you about the spreading the news of the kingdom through joyful obedience? This is what we're to seek. Enter, submit, and spread. So the last question I pose for you is this. Which of these promises I've shared with you today, and I've given you a lot, I know we've covered a lot. Which one of these promises speak to you the most? Which one of these, which one is most necessary where you can say, if I remember this, I'll be a different person this week. That's what I want you to walk away with. When we respond here by singing it as well, I want you to be asking, which one of these promises do I just most need to grasp and wrap my mind around and believe and let God change my world this week? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Most of all, God, I thank you for being a rock that is in control, that is certain in the midst of all kind of worry. God, help us to have great faith, not in ourselves, but in you in the midst of persecution, with money, and with all kind of worry. God, you calm our hearts and help us to pursue the kingdom and be defined by that. I pray in Christ's name, amen.